This episode of The Big Shut-In is brought to you by Gotham Ed, an educational series by our friends at the Gotham Center for New York City History, a part of CUNY, the City University of New York. Gotham Ed presents a unique slate of online courses about the history of New York City, designed to serve a range of backgrounds and purposes, from those who are generally interested in looking for a compact introduction to avid history buffs in search of a much deeper dive. The program offers a mixture of private lectures with discussion and more intimate traditional semi-weekly classes, exploring topics large and small, varying in length with multiple days and times to choose from, and conducted on a digital platform year-round, this series can accommodate any schedule. Want to learn more about what made New York, New York? Go to Gotham Ed. That's G-O-T-H-A-M-E-D dot com. My name is David, and this is The Big Shut-In. It's Tuesday, February 2nd, 2021. Day 324 since all of this began. So today we're continuing a sort of two-part mini-series of voices from Asia. People giving us reports of what it's like in some of the biggest cities on the other side of the Pacific right now. And today we spoke to Ray, who is also an American expat, but this time living, working, studying in Tokyo, Japan. Now, what follows is a story of real isolation. Isolation on several levels. Ray was someone who was already living very much by herself in a country where she did not speak the language, surrounded by a culture that was very different from what she was used to. And then on top of that now, to have been stuck in lockdown in a very small apartment, surrounded by this sea of, of real foreignness was really something to hear about. Talking to her, it, it almost felt like she had been through a psychological experiment, like the emotional equivalent of being submerged in a sensory deprivation tank. Yet she's come through the worst of that and is in a much stronger place now, though still much more isolated than she would like to be, I think. And um, it, it felt like very, it felt very helpful to be giving her the opportunity to talk about what she went through and, and drawing that out of her a little bit, giving her the opportunity to share something that had been so, such a moment of aggressive privateness. And so, and so let's hear from Ray. It was a pleasure to speak to her. You know, I'll start the way I usually start with is, which is just to say, how are you? How are you doing? Yeah, uh, my answer to that is I'm I'm much better now than <laughs> last year. And the main reason is I moved. So Japan is famous for its tiny efficiency apartments, which are fantastic if you're not in them very much. Um, but <laughs> when you move into them and spend 24 seven there it can become an issue yeah so I 
I relocated in December and uh, I have a big sunny window and a little balcony and a park across the street. And this is just uh, expanded, you know, my mental health by many levels. So it might sound a little funny, but I think having access to light and sunshine also just changes your mood immeasurably. For sure. What would you say efficiency apartment? How small was the place you were living in before? Uh, I would say it, I mean, it, on paper, it was 25 square meter, but it had a staircase that was probably one third of that. So I would say it was more like 15 square meter. That's tiny. Yeah. Yeah. Like a hallway, you can say a hallway plus a, maybe a 12 by 12 room. And how, how, and you were really stuck there for how, for how long? I would say from mid-March until early December. Yeah. That's a lot of time looking at the same four, four walls. Let's, I want to get back there though. So, I mean, just to start with where, where are you from originally? I grew up in Ohio and then uh, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Africa. And then after that, I moved to New York City and I spent most of my time there, but going back and forth between international assignments in New York through uh, Columbia University and through NGOs. So what brought you to Japan originally? Why, why Tokyo? Yeah, um, I had this dream you know, for about 15 years that I wanted my PhD. And it happened in, uh, in 2017. I moved to Japan to start my PhD on sustainability science. And this was just the perfect opportunity, uh, for me anyway. I was already doing this work, but this opportunity in Japan was I can, I can do this subject, but from a totally different point of view. I can just flip you know, my point of view upside down and kind of look at the problem of climate change and sustainability from a different way, because I'm in a totally different context and a different uh, culture. So, okay. So you got into this program, you decamped for Japan. When, when was that? When did you, when did you first move there? Uh, 2017. Okay. So you had been there for a few years before the shit hit the fan, so to speak. Um, yeah. And and what was your what was um what was your life in in Tokyo like before? I mean, you know, in normal times because it it's always struck me as being I, I've never been to Japan. I've always wanted to go to Japan, and it's always struck me as maybe one of the most foreign places you could go as an American. Like the language is so different that you can't even read the street signs. You know, like the culture is so specific that the the manners are so specific like what what was your experience of living there like as an expat generally yeah for sure i definitely there's a very specific set of rules and people follow them and there's a lot of um they call it like a high context culture so it's like you're in the know right so if you're japanese you're in the know and you know how you're supposed to do all these things work and what you're supposed to do and if you're a foreigner you don't know but I mean, the nice thing is that Japanese people are, are pretty relaxed and friendly about the fact that you're a foreigner and you don't know these rules. And so they give you a lot of passes, I think, to get by. My life is probably a little bit different than a lot of expats that come here because most, I think uh, most expats speak Japanese and I don't at all. 
And because my degree is in English and I'm, you know, I'm focused on that, I haven't invested in learning Japanese. So I have no way to communicate with people, which when you get to the point of the pandemic is a little bit crazy because suddenly you're completely isolated. I'm no longer interacting with the university in the same way. And now I literally am like an island in a bubble surrounded by people I can't communicate with. So, well, gosh, I want to let's let's talk about that for a moment because that's that's amazing. I mean, how do you? I I know that here here in my bubble in a city that I'm very comfortable in, you know, and know really well. The, the, the way that I interact with the world is a lot of sort of like ordering delivery and like, you know, mm-hmm. that that stuff must be very difficult when you don't speak Japanese, like just getting getting supplies. I mean, how do you how do you do it? That that sort of thing when you can't just call the store and say, send over toilet paper. Like, how do you say toilet paper in Japan? I mean, you know, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So. Yeah, I've spent many an hour, a frustrating hour with a Google Translate, which doesn't always work so well. And you need more than one device, you know, you need one device to hold up the phone and try to translate and you need another device to like have the words in Japanese on and it doesn't always work out. Sometimes you just have to accept that I can't order things online. So also the banking is not very friendly to foreigners here. So if you're a student or you don't have a permanent residency, it's very difficult to get even an account where you can use a debit card function. The the default is to give all the foreigners a savings account. So you're, you're completely limited from day-to-day transactions unless you use cash. So... In that sense, I was kind of already prepared for the pandemic in the sense that I can only really operate in a cash economy mostly anyway. In New York, at some point, you were all told to stay home, right? And you really couldn't go outside unless it was an emergency. Whereas we're in our second state of emergency, but there's no enforcement or punishment if I go to the store. So I can go if I want. And if I need something, the store is open and I can go there and buy it. We were told, you know, maybe to try to limit going out to once per week. That's the same as here. We've never been prevented from going to the grocery store, but it's something I've been preventing, you know, I've often prevented myself from doing when the numbers get Mm -hmm. really bad. Like I don't want to be out, you know, but it seems similar actually. Yeah. I'm curious, how did this first sort of, manifest itself in your life and, and and when did you first sort of realize that things were going to get more challenging and 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 what did that look like like whenever that was was that january last year february march i mean yeah i i think it's a bit interesting although uh you know i'm a graduate student and so i my office is inside the un building where all the un agencies have their offices But the building closed a month before the state of emergency happened in uh, in Tokyo, because, of course, the UN is monitoring the situation worldwide. And they're very good at this, right? They're very good at 
emergencies and data analyzing and crunching data. And they decided in mid-March that we all should go home and work from home. And everything in Tokyo was operating completely normally. So, you know, as a student, financially, you're like, okay, well, everything is open, but I, I don't have the resources to kind of transform my life into something else. So I had to stay home, but there wasn't any law telling me or any rule or even an environment where I should be at home. So that was strange because people were still going out for drinks. They were going out to dinner and my life had to stop. But then the state of emergency happened in mid-April and things really changed then. It became difficult because there was nowhere to go. So that was, it became the same kind of situation that other people in more stricter lockdowns were facing. So what did that do for your schedule, for your day? Like, what did your day become like? Yeah, so I mean, the life of a PhD student might be pretty uh, extreme or boring, maybe to others, but it's really, if you're at the stage where you're already analyzing your data and writing your research, you're pretty much on your own all day and you just sit there all day for 12 hours and struggle with your data <laughs> and with mm -hmm. writing. And you, so from that point of view, whether you do it in your office or at home, that's your kind of own mental struggle, right? Whether you like being at home more or whether you like having the office space. And I am someone who thrives on having the office space and who really used it, uh, you know, every day. So that was difficult for me to not be able to leave my house and go there. Well, I, I'm assuming you had some kind of a social life before this too, uh, that got curtailed. I mean, you know, friends, were you dating? I mean, like, what, what, how did that change and, and shift and disappear? <laughs> yeah, it just, it literally disappeared is the right word. Because Tokyo is such a huge city. So there are 36 million people here, right? And it's, um, wow. Yeah, if you include all the areas, people can live one hour away from each other, which is a bit like Manhattan and Brooklyn, right? So I didn't realize Tokyo was that's almost four New York cities. Mm -hmm. That's that's huge. Yeah. And the difference of Tokyo and Manhattan is that there are a lot of private railway companies, and they all have built their own piece of the network. So there is no common train system where you buy a pass, so you pretty much have to spend $10 per trip to go somewhere. As students, we find ways to socialize because we have a common area that we end up in every day. But when you, when everyone stops going to that area, it becomes financially prohibitive for people to meet each other because for us all to get to one place would be difficult. It strikes me that in, in sort of self-quarantine, self-isolation, there's been two I feel like there's two categories of experiences that people are having and it's either, oh my God, I now have no time to myself at all ever, or holy cow, I have nothing but time to myself forever. It's it's one of the two, right? And I feel like I and Tanya and, and other people with children, it's the first of those. And it's been just 
I, I can't spend another minute with these people or I'm going to go nuts. But I'm interested to hear your experience a little bit of that other kind of like, holy cow, I haven't talked to a person in three days. Like, what what is that kind of isolation, particularly you were describing being this tiny little apartment surrounded by a totally foreign culture? Like, what was that? What did that feel like? I mean, were mm. you going a little nuts? Yeah, I have to say it definitely affected my mental health, which is why, as I mentioned at the beginning, I made this decision to move. I reached a certain point, I would say, during the first state of emergency, where it was several days before I would speak out loud. So my only words that I got to say out loud were thank you in Japanese, which is arigato gozaimasu, when I got to the supermarket. And I got to say thank you out loud, you know, for something. So it became this thing where I would laugh at myself because I'm like, I get to say some words out loud. But then I also had some days where it became a bit, I got a bit panicked about it, having to go outside and interact in the real world and past people who I couldn't communicate with and I wanted to, I think I was starting to suffer that I need to talk to people and I, the people around me, I actually can't talk to them. So then it became a little bit the opposite. Like, I don't wanna go outside. I don't wanna have to talk to anyone because I'm afraid now. So, you know, I observe all these different kind of feelings or, you know, experiences you might have. And I even made myself little sticky notes at some point, like reminding myself how I used to feel before the pandemic and giving myself kind of positive boosts and then giving myself kind of tasks to do like, okay, today I'm going to message, you know, my friend in New York because they can speak the same language as me. And that even if I don't feel like talking to anyone anymore, because now I feel a bit inward and afraid. If I give myself a practice to talk to someone again in New York, then that will help me, you know, get through this. A lot of it did have to do with my particular place where I was staying, which didn't have, you know, a lot of sunlight. What, what would you, what were some of the things you would write on those notes to yourself? I wrote things like, um, Remember that girl, the one who was confident, like, and liked socializing, I would write things like that to myself. And I wrote one that was like, you, you still have a job. And that was a reminder to myself that someone is, you know, providing me financial resources to do research, and I have obligations, even if I'm alone all the time, I have to remember that you know, this is a privilege. And this is my dream to get a chance to do this. So I have to use this time, even if I'm isolated to do the work, which I set out to do. When you get squirrely and under socialized, how does that manifest itself? Do you read? Do you watch television? Do you paint? Do you bake? Do you drink? Do you stare at the wall? Like what, what's your particular <laughs> flavor of, of, uh, of isolated depression, if I can ask that that way. <laughs> Those are good questions. You know, what's funny is I think in America, it would be, yeah, maybe I would, it would involve drinking alcohol or baking or doing those things. Strangely, I just wasn't interested in drinking wine throughout the 
pandemic and I never did. And baking is not really a thing here because most apartments don't have ovens. So I have a little tabletop oven and I think I baked muffins one time, but so I couldn't rely on those kind of things. So I think a lot of my effort just went into looking for jobs because I didn't have enough teaching jobs to survive through the pandemic and just working on my research. I think I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how I could change my situation too. I actually started participating a lot in international conferences on my topic, which is about improving the way we grow food in an environmentally sustainable way. So it became a lot easier actually because things that might have been in person and by invite only became more open to people who could participate online. We've had a, a heck of a couple of years here, perhaps you noticed, uh, politically and um, every other way. And so it's been hard a little bit, even by American standards, to be paying attention to what's going on in the rest of the world. But I have noticed that what I've heard out of Japan is it seems like the last year there's been almost as much liberty gibbeting from the official as there has been here about sort of, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. No, it's terrible panic. No, no, it's 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 all fine. Don't worry. No, no, no. You should panic now. No, stop panicking. Like, what's your experience been of that, of kind of what the guidelines have been and what the official response has been through all of this? Early on, when in March or in April 2020, when New York was having its worst first spike, here we were in a state of emergency from mid-April, but we had 100 or 200 cases per day. And the government's response was to keep testing very low because at the time, the regulation was that if you were if you had a positive test, you had to be hospitalized. So this was not a secret, which they were hiding because of the Olympics, but this was their strategy. They didn't want to fill the beds in the hospital with people who were mildly symptomatic. So in the beginning, it was very hard to get a test at all. You had to show signs of pneumonia, basically, to be able to get a test. You really had to show that you were uh, severely ill if you wanted to get a test at all. Now, if you fast forward to a year later, so you don't have to be hospitalized if you're infected, but they've said what they've done in Japan is they've contracted hotels. So if you test positive and you're mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic, you're sent to a hotel where you're supposed to stay and report your condition and that's supposed to free up the hospital beds. But even so, because specifically of the situation in Japan where hospitals don't have to accept patients, especially COVID patients, and most of the public hospitals or even some large private hospitals don't want to accept COVID patients um, because of, you know, kind of a unique cultural context of Japan, which is that they think it would hurt their reputation if they had COVID patients. And so it has been reported on or talked about in the media is that there are now a growing number of patients who just 
are languishing at home and should have a hospital bed. And in fact, there have been some deaths. But so this this is why probably the state of emergency is in effect right now is largely because Japan is trying as a priority to lower the percentage of beds in the hospital and to free up more space for patients who should be hospitalized but aren't right now. And the government is also trying to put in place regulations that make it more unacceptable for hospitals to refuse patients or to get hospitals to accept patients. So they don't have the power to make a law and say you have to accept these patients. But what they can do, which is more common in Japan, is to shame hospitals that don't take these patients. So they're publishing the name of the hospital and saying they aren't, you know, complying with our request to take patients. But what does that do for people who are sick now, right? So so do I understand you right that you had COVID or suspect you did all, all the way back last January? So in my case, I mean, I was quite ill and it, I recognized in January 2020 that it was a virus unlike any virus I'd had before and was not a flu. But I, I, it didn't occur to me, you know, of course, no one can foreshadow or guess that this was some type of coronavirus. It wasn't in my brain space to think, what, what is this? So, yes, I mean, I stayed home and drank fluids until I was well enough to go outside again. And I, when I found out I couldn't get a test three months later, um, I just, again, I was told to go home and wait it out. And there wasn't really anything I could do about that because the answer, even if I went to another clinic or a hospital, they weren't likely to give me the test. So now if I went now and I wanted to travel, I could pay 300 US dollars about for a test. But I don't think that I could just get a test just because I said, I think I would like to have one. You spoke about rebuilding your life. What are some strategies, you know, you're in this new space, looking forward, perhaps more clear eyed, understanding what the situation is better. What are some strategies you have for not getting back into the place where you have to write notes to yourself that say, remember to be happy, you know, like what, do you have some particular plans or techniques or equipment or anything you've, you're putting in place to kind of make things work better? Yeah, um, I think uh, one is just the physical part of it. So I, again, not to talk too much about changing places, but I purposely, you know, change places to somewhere where I have space to roll out a yoga mat. And I have a park nearby. So for sure, one of my strategies is that I can add back that physical exercise part to my life. So that means I... I don't feel the same constraint that I felt before. I thought 2020 was going to be the big year that I achieved this dream after 15 years, which was getting my PhD. And, you know, we can all laugh what happened with 2020, right? So I'm hopeful, you know, I think I've, I'm set up now in a space where I'm going to be able to, to make this work. Well, do you, do you, do you still feel an urgency to, to leave or do you want to stay or do you have other, I mean, what are you thinking about? Where do you want to be in the world? 
I guess that's an open question for me still, because uh, it depends on the day you ask me, I guess. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, I, I want to get out of here just because I can't communicate with people. And it is difficult to live here as a foreigner, especially if you uh, haven't spent the time to learn Japanese. But at the same time, I'm also cognizant of how many advantages and just um, privileges I have by being able to survive the pandemic in such a safe kind of place where I can just do my research. And I don't feel like I have as many safety concerns as people might have in New York, where it's kind of been a mixed approach. So I guess my answer is I don't know yet. I'm okay with where I am right now. And I'm still thinking about leaving and still trying to appreciate what I have. This has been The Big Shut-In. My name is David Hoffman, and I produce and story edit the show, along with Tanya Mohammed. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann, Publication and promotion by Kelsey Kors. It's a production of Race Car Radio, racecarradio.com. If you have a story you think would be a good fit for the show, please do reach out. The Big Shut In at racecarradio.com. <laughs>